Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Good evening and welcome to the Club Book with Mary Kubica. My name is Stacy Hendren and I am the manager of the Northtown Library in Anoka County. I'm also the 2021 president of the Minnesota Library Association. I have the honor of hosting our featured guest and moderating questions tonight. Before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing her to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Anoka County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. I would like to say a special thank you to our state legislators who voted this spring to support library legacy funding and to those of you that reached out to them for that reason. Without further ado, over the last decade, thriller novelist Mary Kubica has established herself as a mainstay of the genre. The Good Girl, her 2014 breakout about an amnesiac kidnapping victim became an indie next list pick and put Kubica in contention for the Goodreads Choice Award. It is currently being adapted for television and won't be the only of Kubica's seven books to make it to the screen. Netflix recently purchased the rights to The Other Misses, a modern whodunit set in the tight-knit island community off the coast of Maine. Fellow mystery heavyweight and club book alum, Karen Slaughter called this bestseller altogether unpredictable, a descriptor that holds true for most of Kubica's work. Her latest, released in March, is Local Woman Missing. In this daringly plotted, emotionally eviscerating psychological thriller, says Publisher Weekly, several women vanish without a trace from a seemingly safe and ordinary community. When one of these victims returns 10 years later, the shocking truth upends even more lives. So after a short presentation by our guest and some initial questions from me, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will route them to me. If, if you prefer to stay, if you prefer to ask a question a little bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. So thank you for joining us tonight, Mary. I'll hand it off to you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm just, I'm so excited to be here tonight. Um, thankfully, all the Facebook issues have been resolved so we can we can have this tonight. Um, and I'm just so excited to, to be able to chat with you about my latest thriller, um, Local Women Missing. And I guess just to start, um, I, I thought I would tell you a little bit about the book and then um, we can have our conversation. But um, Local Woman Missing is the seventh psychological suspense 
And this one, it takes place in two different time periods, um, now in the present time and then 11 years before. And um, the story is about um, three, two women and a little girl, three people who go missing from a um, quiet, seemingly safe suburban community from the suburbs of Chicago, which is where I'm from. And there's um, you know, an investigation into their disappearances. Everybody wants to know if these are isolated incidents or if these disappearances are connected. And the police do uncover some clues, but ultimately the cases go cold um, until 11 years later when the little girl who was just six at the time, she's now 17, returns. And everybody wants to know um, where she's been all this time and, and where are the others. And so this book was, it was just, it was a really fun one for me to write. Um, I, 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 it, writing is a weird thing in that it's, you know, some books cooperate when you write them and some totally don't. And so it's not one of those things that necessarily gets easier the more you write. But Local Woman Missing was just like the best behaved child. It just, you know, I, I it flowed and I think like the character spoke to me really quickly and um, I just got them. And so it made it just such a wonderful experience to write this book. And um, so I'm so excited to chat about it and all of you out there joining us tonight. Um, thank you for being here. And um, if you've had a chance to read it, thank you so much. Wonderful. If you haven't read it yet, I, again, I highly recommend it. And I'm looking forward to our discussion as well. So I'm going to digress with a non-related but related question first. I was wondering if you tell us a little bit about your work in the animal shelter. So I felt so much empathy for the dog at the beginning of the story, for Wyatt, the family's dog, and all the dogs that Kate works with at the clinic. So just share a little bit about that, please. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge animal lover. Um, I grew up with animals and then um, I started working at a shelter near my house. Um, it's been, I think, about 11 years now that I've been there. And I just, I absolutely, I just, I love it. You know, for me, it's um, it's such a rewarding feeling to go into the shelter and work with these animals. And I mean, there's nothing like animals. You know, there's no judgment. They they love you on your worst day. I just, you know, I just love that. Just that, that feeling of always being welcome. And so I love to, to support them and give back and do what I can to, to help them. Um, things have been a little different during COVID and that for most of it, the shelter was actually closed to volunteers, just open to a few um, staff members. So I've actually used that time to, I've always fostered a little bit here and there, but I've used, you know, the last 18 months to really ramp up my, um, my fostering. And so we have five foster kittens right now that, that are with us. And so we've, we've gone through over the last, I think it's like 30 to 40 cats and kittens that we fostered over the last year and a half. So um, so I've, I've loved doing that. I've loved being able to be a part of that shelter community and to help, you know, even when I can't get into the shelter. And um, so I, I brought, you know, Wyatt and the other animals, there's a cat named Zeus. And um, I feel like most of my books, there's some animal that makes an appearance because I love them for one. But I also feel like I really want my characters to be like everyday ordinary people, just like you and you and me. So, um, you know, a lot of us have pets. They're a part of our family. They're a part of our lives. And so um, it would feel wrong to just completely exclude them from my book. So I do, I think that, you know, when, when things happen, like in this book, um, why it belongs to Meredith and Delilah who go missing. And, you know, I think that, that that impacts, you know, the animals too. And, and so I kind of mentioned that and one of my, one of my characters is, is a vet at a clinic. And so, you know, you just, you, as you get to know her as a character, you see the experiences that she has as a vet. And actually I have a very good friend who is a vet. And so, um, you know, I was able to kind of, um, some of, some of Kate's stories and some of the things that she says about being a vet, I was able to kind of draw from some conversations that I've had with my own friends and just you know, some of those things that she experiences in her line of work. And so I just, I think it makes the characters that much more authentic by adding the animals in there. Oh, wow. Well, I totally agree. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing more about that. Yeah. So um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the inspiration for Local Woman Missing. Yeah. So I always, when I start my books, it's just a tiny not developed idea, you know, and I, I usually don't know how it's going to grow and develop when I write. But with local women missing, I think the, the thing that intrigues me the most is that so often when we hear about missing people on the news, um, the story ends, if, if they return, the story ends, I feel like with their return. You know, we don't, 
hear what happens next and what it's like for some person who's been living in captivity for however long, you know, what it's like when they return home to their families and that like deep seated fear that must stay with them and a complete inability to trust people and just things like that. And so that was where the story started for me was for me was that I wanted to sort of explore life after, you know, this period of time in captivity. And um, so I didn't know, you know, how the rest of the story was going to unfold or, or what it was actually that, that put this character into captivity. You know, I didn't really know what came before that. But I knew that. And so um, the spoiler free, but the book starts with a, a chapter from a, a, a character's point of view who is trying to escape captivity. And so that was where I started writing and just kind of settled into her story. And, um, you know, from there started the, the wheels started spinning in my head and I started coming up with you know, some more ideas for where the story was going to go. Wow. And so Delilah is the one at the beginning who's held cap captive. Is any part of that based on a true story? Because it really reads like it. <laughs> Thank you. It, um, it's actually not. I mean, it feel, I think it, it, it could be so, you know, I feel like it's something that you could so easily see on the news or watch, you know, a true crime documentary about. I feel like it's not based on any person that I know or any story that I've heard of, but it's also so reminiscent of so many things that we do hear, sadly, on the news. But her her voice, she, it just she just spoke to me, you know, and I feel like she has a pretty um, unique voice. And even before I started writing the book, you know, I could just kind of hear her in my head. And that was one of those things that made me connect so much to her. And I feel like when I have a closer connection to my characters that hopefully um, I'm able to tell their story, even better, you know, a little bit more emotionally and powerfully because they feel like I have that connection with them. And with her, it was just so strong. So um, yeah, so that's kind of wow. where she came from. <laughs> cool. Can you tell us, um, well, not cool, super sad, but yes, it came across really well. Oh, can you tell a little, a little bit, Delilah's one of the narrators, but you have several narrators. Can you talk a little bit about your choice of whose internal voice is heard and who whose isn't, both in the before and the now? Yeah, absolutely. That's always, you know, once I get that first idea for a book, this, the next thing that I think about or, you know, the question I ask myself is who is going to tell this story? And I, all of my books, I write from multiple narrators' points of view. Um, I don't think, I don't think I could write a book from just one point of view because I like, I don't know, I just like the dimension that it adds to the story by having all these narrators. And, and I think that in a mystery story too, you can kind of play off, those narrators can play off each other and um, you know, they can, their storylines can connect or not connect, which makes you wonder why. And um, so I, so I love that. So, you know, I knew that I was going to need more than Delilah to tell this story. Um, and so it, for this book, we hear from four different narrators. So we hear from Delilah, who's the little girl who at 17 years old returns home. We hear from her. Um, and then we hear from her mother, who is also one of the women who goes missing. So we hear from her in the past. And her name is Meredith. And Meredith is a doula. Um, which it, it was, it's, I'm not a plotter. So it's one of those things that, you know, I, when I introduced her as being a doula and I also know a doula. So I was, I was pulling some inspiration for my, my, my life here too, but, um, I, she was missing, you know, and her husband wasn't immediately panicking. And so I, I wanted a reason why he might not immediately panic. And I was thinking of my friends who is a doula and how, you know, there are many times that she's called into a birth in the middle of the night or, you know, during the day and she's gone for 24 hours and hard to get in touch with and things like that. And so I thought, well, maybe if Meredith was a doula, it would explain why she might be unreachable for this period of time. And, you know, everybody, they're, they're getting nervous, but they're not on like super high alert. And um, so I, I, I made her a doula. But then I, I had no idea when I made her a doula that it actually ends up being a really big part of this story. You know, there are so many other characters and mysteries that that really revolve around her being a doula. So that was that was kind of something that I didn't anticipate when I made her a doula. But so Meredith, she's a mother. We hear from her in the before. Um, you know, she's doing she's trying her hardest to be a mother, but she's a very busy working woman. And then some other things beyond her control start happening that just kind of um you know, really, hopefully, you know, ramp up that mystery there. And then um, we hear from um, Kate, who lives right next door to this family. And so Kate is really instrumental when 
when um, Delilah and Meredith both go missing, Kate really kind of, she, she wants to find them. She helps organize search parties and um, she knows Meredith, they're close friends. So, so we hear from her a lot that way, you know, and she's really, she's missing her friends. She wants to find her friend. So, um, so we hear from Kate. And then in the present, we hear from Leo. So Leo is, um, he's Delilah's little brother. Um, so when we hear from him in the present, he's a 15 year old boy. And his, I don't know, I, I loved all of these narrators. I, I feel like I've been asked many times to pick a favorite and I think every time I give a different favorite because, <laughs> because I just like them all so much. But Leo is, uh, he, he, was, he was a fun one to write. I actually, I, I wrote his from the second um, second person point of view, which I've never done before, but um, I wanted to kind of differentiate his voice from the others. And so I thought I'm going to try that and just see what it's like. And I ended up loving it. His whole story is basically he's talking to Delilah um, and he's got a lot of feelings about this or about her return when the story begins. He's, he's pretty resentful actually, because his whole life has sort of been on hold for her. You know, he's always played second fiddle to her because everybody wants to know where she is and they're grieving her loss and things like that. So, um, so when she comes back, he's, he's kind of mad <laughs> because he's sort of finally moved on and it wasn't all about her anymore, but now it is. And, um, you know, I, I have teenagers myself, so I was able to really relate to, you know, what it's like to be a teenager and what do teenagers talk like and, and act like and things like that. And he grows so much throughout the pages of the book. You know, I feel like by the end of it, I was just like so proud of the boy that he became. So, um, so yeah, so those are the four narrators that you hear from in this book. And like I said, I just had such a deep connection to all of them. And, you know, as a writer, that's kind of always my goal is I know that the writing is going to get so much more easy and fluid as soon as I can really connect with my characters. Oh, wow. We had a couple of questions from the viewers kind of on this topic. So one was, um, how did you, how did you decide to have Delilah in captivity for 11 years? Was there any meaning to that length of time? You know, um, I wanted it to be enough time that she didn't really have a lot of memories of her childhood. Um, because I just, you know, I wanted, I wanted to uncover those things from some of the other characters versus Delilah coming back and just telling us what happens. Um, so I, that was, that was, I think my primary reason for having this time span. I think too, it's, it's kind of neat because we see, Delilah, you know, in, in Meredith's before chapters, when she's a six-year-old girl and she's going to kindergarten and, you know, she's having conflicts with her, her little classmates and things like that. And then all of a sudden she's 17 and she's been through this horrific experience and she's very much changed. So I kind of, I liked that too. I like to be able to create or present, you know, this same character, but in just two different, two very different points of her life. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I'd like to share a quote from the book. Um, there ain't no light coming into this place where they keep guessing me. We're underground. There's no windows here. And that crack of light that should be at the bottom of the door ain't there. The man and the lady that live upstairs are keeping the light all to themselves, sharing none with Gus and me. So one of the themes I noticed was that that bat play with dark and light, um, you know, running in the dark, the light of the headlights, the darkness in the basement, and kind of the dark and light side of the characters. And then also that in-between shade where it's not quite dark enough. Um, will you talk a little bit about that theme and your youth? Yeah, yeah, it's one, theme is one of those things that, um, I think it, it must come from the subconscious, maybe because I, I never think <laughs> about it in advance. You know, I, I don't, I don't intentionally think about themes or, you know, try to put themes into the book. And um, it's one of those things when it's all said and done, usually, and I've had a little bit of distance from the book, and I kind of reread it, um, that those things start to pop out to me. And it seems like with all the books, you know, there's something that I've done, but not intentionally. Um, and I think that I think with this, it's more like the greenness. I think that um, jumps out to me versus the, you know, those, um, the polar opposites of light and dark. It, it is that space in between. And I think, you know, with, with every, with, with so many situations and so many people, you know, the different characters, it's, it's not all good or bad, you know, it's, there's a lot of in between with these people. And so, you know, um, we have, you know, characters who are trying so hard to be, you know, the very best, but maybe they have something in their past that's haunting them or, 
you know, and I think that that is, is one of those things that I just love to explore. So, so there is, there is so much lightness and darkness kind of brought into this book. And I think, I think in part of that too, is like, Delilah has been through this horrible experience, but there's kind of hope at the end of it. And I think that, that that's something that I do kind of keep trying to go back to, that for many of these characters, even though they do experience horrible things through the book, there's some, some sort of positive outcome or something, something good has become of it or will become of it, or you know, there's, there's some sort of happiness at the end of it. Um, so I think that that's kind of where I come from. The, the book, it, it's, it's dark, <laughs> but I feel like it also ends on like a maybe a bit of a hopeful tone too that things might be better in the future from, you know, from this point on. So, so that I think is one of the things that um, I, I like to leave my readers with, you know, to kind of question that gray area between, between within people and just kind of the mysteries that are unfolding. And also, you know, to, to think that there might be hope after this. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, well, hopeful ending. Yes. Um, though this is the spoiler free. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can share that. Yes. Um, so Josh is Meredith's husband. And early in the story, Josh is out searching for the missing family after, after the police have stopped. And, mid and midway through the book, one of the characters says, it's time we stop being amateur sleuths and let the police handle this. We're in over our heads. Can you talk a little bit about that balance between what we must do and discover ourselves and what we must hand over to the police, but in terms of what makes a great thriller? Yeah, for sure. Um, so obviously, you know, we have missing women, our missing girl, you know, missing people. <laughs> and the characters do call the police right away, you know, because I, I think as a reader, one of those things that really bothers me is when something horrible is happening, you know, and it takes the characters days to involve the police, you know. Um, and so I they, they do call the police right away when they realize, you know, this is something is happening here. Um, and but but as a writer, I have I have written a detective um, narrator before in The Good Girl, but um, I shy away from it, though, because I'm, I'm not a detective, you know, I don't know everything about being a detective. And it's not that I, I, I do plenty of research for my books, but but sometimes they also just want to be able to like sink into my characters and and experience them, you know, on a more just kind of organic level versus constant research and am I doing this right? And, you know, all of that. So, so the police were necessary, but I also want these characters to be, un be able to uncover so many things for themselves, you know, maybe secrets that people are, are hiding and, you know, um, just things like that. So I, I, I feel like my books definitely fall in that domestic suspense genre. So that's why I really want to, I want my characters for, for, that's not to say I'll never write another detective, but generally I want my characters to just be everyday ordinary people that get put in these crazy situations and try and figure them out, you know, and, and I think all of us, if, if, you know, someone was to go missing on our street, I think all of us would probably, many of us would turn into amateur sleuths and try and figure out, you know, what happens. Um, so I, I feel like I kind of start with there and just try to make it as, you know, like just human on a very like human level you know what what's that like and what's their what are they uncovering but i do definitely have their the police there because i think they're necessary just for you know possibility. <laughs> i know when i read that um we're in over our heads it's like yes you are <laughs> it's just great how it all played out thank you so um in your last two books i couldn't miss the motive that People we think we know, particularly neighbors, are all different behind closed doors. Do you think this holds true in real life? You know, I do. I do. Um, I I think, um, you know, here in my own neighborhood, you know, I have a lot of close friends, but there are a lot of people that I just, you know, wave and drive by and I don't really know them, you know, and so people like that, you you don't know, you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. And, and I think though that even people that you do know pretty well, um, you know, you can only know about a person as much as they're willing to share with you. So, um, you know, so I think that there's always that fine line between how well do you really know this person and what secrets are they, are they keeping 
doing. Um, and I, I know, I mean, I feel like in my, my own life, my own neighborhood, you know, there are people that you, you find out something, whether it's about their past, their present, you know, that is really surprising. Just you didn't know that. And, you know, maybe there just wasn't the opportunity to know that, or maybe it's something that someone's been keeping from you, but it always just makes me wonder, you know, the things that you don't know. And I feel like neighborhoods are, they're just very intimate places. You know, you, you pass these people every day on the street, you live, you know, however many feet away from them. And, you know, so they are very intimate places, you know, you trust each other, um, when you, when you see each other, you let your kids outside, you know, and, and so I think that all that, it, it, it just leads to, you know, the possibility that something could happen, that somebody may be, may not be who you think they are. And so that is definitely a theme that I, I love to explore, again, because I feel like I'm so into that domestic, domestic suspense genre, that neighborhoods and, you know, communities and like tight-knit communities, I feel like really go hand in hand with that. Oh, wow. Makes me want to get to know my neighbors a little bit better. <laughs> so, um, so you mentioned this a little bit. Will you tell us more about your research process specifically for this book, but also in general? Yeah, for sure. So with this book, um, it ended so most of my research was really on, on doulas, I have to say. Um, and again, going back to earlier, you know, I didn't really even know that it was that, that Meredith being a doula was going to be such a big part of this book, but, but it is. And um, so I did a lot of research into being a doula, but also, you know, some things that go wrong during childbirth that, um, that maybe you wouldn't think about. Um, and so the, the more I just, I, I, uncovered and a lot of it is online research you know reading reading blogs reading medical websites things like that um the more i uncovered you know it kind of i, I always fall down these like rabbit holes of research and I, I i learned so many things that i never thought i needed to know and you know maybe 50 percent of it if that makes it into a book but i feel like all that knowledge just um you know it just helps make the characters that much more real but um, yeah, so I just, I learned so much about being a doula and what goes wrong. And then I was able to kind of use some of that to my advantage to kind of create some, some additional mysteries within this story. Um, so I feel like that was where the bulk of my research was. And, and again, having a, having a friend who's a doula was great because I wrote the book and then, you know, I sent her a draft and said, can you let me know if, if there's any glaring errors, you know, from a doula point of view here. So that was really, really helpful. Um, I, I tend to do most of my research online but I do reach out to a number of people. My last book, The Other Misses, touched on some mental health issues. So after I had finished writing that, I did ask a therapist to read the book. And same as with my doula friends, just, you know, was, was there any point where I was being insensitive or, you know, just anything that, um, that might hurt somebody inadvertently, you know, so that was really helpful. Or just was I making any mistakes in the language I was using and things like that. So that was really helpful. Um, so I do research. There always seems to be a couple, a couple topics that I feel like I need to research pretty heavily with each book, but also so much of it. I mean, this is kind of, I get to make a lot of stuff up too. I've always, <laughs> I've always thought it would be really fun to write historical fiction. And then I think about all the research and I get really intimidated. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, you tie in all those things you learned so well. Oh, um, so one of our um, one person is asking, are you a fan of kind of the true crime content podcast TV and where where do you draw your if not there, where do you draw these great ideas? You know, I am a fan. Um, I, I, um, I do more, I've listened to the true crime podcast. I will forever be a huge fan of serial. That was that was the one that got me started. And I just loved it. Oh, great. I, would, I was driving in the car listening to it and I didn't ever want to get out of my car. I just want to keep driving. Um, but I did, you know, over, over COVID, especially, I think that we watched like every true crime documentary that Netflix had to offer. And um, so definitely I'm a big fan and, and I do pull inspiration from there for sure. And, you know, I, I, um, I read the news, I watch the news. So I feel like, you know, whenever I'm going to watch something on TV, it's always something mystery based, I feel like. And so I feel like <laughs> I'm always drawing inspiration from these things. And, and usually when I start a book, you know, I start with some, someone is missing, someone has been murdered. You know, I kind of start from there with that crime that whatever, you know, has, has happened. And then I start to build the characters in the story from that point. So, um, oh, that brings me 
so you're building from that point. Can you tell us a little bit about how you like your writing process? Like, are you a plotter or are you, how does that work? I am not a plotter. (laughs) (laughs) I am, um, I I call myself usually a pantser, which is, you know, someone who flies by the seat of their pants, but someone someone recently described it as a gardener, which I, I like, it's a, it's, it's a, a better imagery, I think of, you know, you have a seed and you plant your seed and you water it, but you're not really sure what is going to grow or if something is going to grow. Cause sometimes that does happen, but, you know, so I start with this idea, you know, in this case, it was Delilah escaping captivity and I had no idea. I had no idea, you know, um, well, why was she in captivity, you know, and, and I just started writing, you know, and, and initially it was just going to be Delilah and her mother who were missing. And so I started writing that. And then all of a sudden I thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be, you know, even more powerful if, if somebody else was missing, you know, there was already someone had been, had gone missing in the neighborhood. So then it just kind of ups the, ups the ante there, just, you know, really kind of raises the stakes. And so it's, I just kind of do it like that, (laughs) you know, and I'm writing, which it's something that I love about it, you know, on any given day that I get up and get on the computer and start writing, I I really have no idea what's going to happen. And um, there are times that I I write myself into a corner and I have to delete a lot of things, you know, and get back on a better, a better, a better road. Um, But, but I just love it. I love just the kind of organic way that the story and the characters kind of unfold. And, you know, um, the one thing that I do with my writing, though, going back to the four different narrators, is that I actually write one of them at a time. So instead of writing mm-hmm. the book like you would read it, I, I started with Delilah and I wrote her story. And hers is like the first 40 pages of the book. But then I moved on to Kate and I wrote Kate's whole story from beginning to end. And wow. then I set Kate aside. And then I wrote all of Meredith and I set her aside and I wrote all of Leo. And then I, I mean, I take it to like the FedEx store and I print it out and I have my like four stacks of paper and I start working the book together. So um, I, I love doing it that way. I've always done it that way. I just, I, I got the idea with The Good Girl, my first book and it worked. So I've just, I've just kept doing it. And I like it because like with this book, for example, actually none of the storylines are linear in time. So there was, there's really no need to go back and forth. Um, they're all just a little bit off of each other. So this way I can, I can just focus on that time, what is happening at that time and be true to the, that narrator. You know, I can be in his or her head and I can just, I'm not worried about mixing up, you know, Kate and Meredith's voices because I'm just focusing on one of them at a time. And so I just feel like it's, it, it, when I describe it, I feel like it always sounds very complicated, but when I'm writing it, I think it makes the process much less complicated. Oh, wow. <laughs> so um, will you tell us a little bit more about how you got into, into publishing and got an agent? So did you have difficulty bringing the good girl to the market or did your publisher just know this was a good thing when they saw it? <laughs> So I used to be um, a high school history teacher and I taught for many years and I I always loved to write though. I I loved to write since I was 10, 11, something like that. Um, But I was always very shy about my writing. So, you know, writing was something that was for me, but I I never thought that one day I would want to be an author. Um, So I, you know, I wrote throughout my childhood, through college, while I was teaching. And then when my daughter was born, that was back in 2005, I left my career temporarily, I thought, to to raise my family. And it was was like weeks after my daughter was born (laughs) that I started writing what's become the good girl. I don't know now how I I possibly was writing a book with an infant at home, but somehow I did that. And um, I started writing The Good Girl. And, and when I started, it was just like, you know, anything that I had written before. Um, and I don't know, I just, I, lo- I liked it, but you know, it was, I don't know, I didn't know that this one was going to be any difference. And everything I'd written before was like unfinished, you know, I'd write it and then lose interest and move on to something new. But with The Good Girl, just something clicks. And I, I think it had to do with those characters. You know, I just, I connected to the characters really quickly and the storyline. And I just, I, I wanted to write it all the time. You know, when I wasn't writing, I was thinking about writing. And I, again, I had a little one at home. So I was just any spare minute that I possibly had, I was on the laptop. And um, at some point writing that book, you know, I finally felt the urge to 
want to do something with this book and, and see if I could get it published. And I, and I wrote the whole book in privacy. I didn't tell anybody that I was working on it. It took me five years to write it. And then when I finished, you know, I knew I, I knew I wanted to do something with it, but I didn't know what, I didn't know how to go about getting a book published. I, I hadn't studied creative writing in college because I had, you know, studied to be a teacher and, um, I didn't, I didn't have any author friends. I had never belonged to a writer's group because I'd always <laughs> been so shy about my writing. I didn't want to share anything. So, um, so I didn't know what to do. So I got on the internet as we do and, you know, Googled, how do I, what do I do <laughs> you know, with this book I just wrote? And, <laughs> um, and, you know, there's a book that lists literary agents called The Writer's Market. And so mm -hmm. I went and I got a copy of that. And I, I went through and I highlighted like <laughs> every single agent that represented something that I, th I thought I had written. You know, I wasn't even sure what, what's, what genre this was or anything. And so I wrote up a query letter and I just, I started sending um, that query letter and, you know, some, some of the agents want a couple chapters, some just want the query letter. And then if they're interested, they'll ask for more. So I started sending it out again. Nobody, nobody had ever read this book besides me. Nobody had proofread it, nothing. <laughs> I, started, I started sending it out to, to a lot of agents. I didn't keep track, but it was like upwards of a hundred. Um, and so I sent it out and, you know, within like minutes of hitting send on the emails, the rejections started coming in and there were, there were three agents that asked to read the whole manuscript, but ultimately every single agent turned it down. So I thought, um, you know, that book will never be published. And I moved on. I started writing something else. I don't know what it is or where it is, but it was, you know, it was nothing that grabbed me like the good girl. I, you know, I, I just, I felt like that was the best I could do at that point in my career, at least. Um, so two years passed actually after that last yeah. rejection, two years passed. And then one of these agents reached back out to me and asked if the book was, um, if it was still available, if I'd sold it. Um, so it just so happens that she was brand new to this literary agency. The first time I queried them, she was right out of college and she'd been given the task of going through their slush pile and, and, um, seeing if there was anything in there worth pursuing. And she read the good girl. She loved the good girl. She wanted to pursue it but she couldn't get the rest of her team on board. And she was working as an assistant for another agent. So she just didn't have the authority to take it on herself. Um, so she had to pass on her team's behalf. And within those next two years, she was promoted to a literary agent. And so she was in a position to represent her own clients. And she remembered the good girl for two years. And so wow. she, she sought me out. And um, I just, I mean, there was this moment of what is happening when I got, when I got her email. Um, so it was, it was a dream come true. And I just think, you know, it was hard going through all that rejection, but in retrospect, it was just the best way it could happen. And, and I knew that she was as passionate about that book as I was. So she and I worked together for um, a few months, cleans it up a little bit, um, finally got proofread. <laughs> and then, so that was back in, I think, 2012. And then by the end of that year, she was sending it out to publishers. And, um, I got, I did get two offers from, from, um, editors on the same day. And I was able to get on the phone with both of them and they were absolutely lovely. I would have been very lucky to work with either of them, but the, the woman I go, I went with, who's still my editor today. She, um, well, for one, she kind of scared me. I knew she was tough. But <laughs> <laughs> I knew she was going to push me to make that book the best that it could be, but she, she had also offered me a two book deal. And, you know, at that point I only had one book, but I, I knew that this was like a like a once in a lifetime opportunity to take this one book and act you know just make a career with it so um so I did so I went with her and and I've, I've been with the same publisher ever since and and you know they just you know I've, I've learned so much about publishing and marketing a book um over the last many years and I know that it just means everything if you have a publisher who is 110 110 percent behind you and just supporting and marketing that book because there are so many phenomenal books out there you know that come out every single Tuesday and so you know, just to get that visibility, it's, it's hard. And so to have a publisher that, that really supports you is everything. So, you know, they were the ones that really just, they took over with the good girl and just, they did a phenomenal job of marketing and promoting it. Wow. Wow. So now that you have half dozen, a half dozen books under your belt, have you found that it gets easier, easier <laughs> to think of ideas, commit ideas to words and to see your books published? It's, um, no, <laughs> it's, uh, 
it's each book is just like its own thing, you know? And I, I, the only, I think that it's how much I connect to the storyline and the characters that seems to be the best answer I have for as to why some seem easier and some seem more difficult. You know, if I just, if I am just getting the storyline and I can kind of see three chapters ahead and all of that, and I'm really connecting with the characters, then it's great. The writing just flows. But then there are times where it feels like, it feels like work. <laughs> it feels like more of a job to write, you know, because those characters just aren't talking to me. And, um, you know, there's more deleting than writing going on. And, and so that happens. And, um, you know, I think that I've come to just accept that that happens. You know, right now I'm, I am writing something incredibly slowly. COVID has not helped. Um, but I'm, I'm finally starting to, to find my traction again. And, you know, and so this one's not being as cooperative as Local Women Missing, but I keep telling myself it's okay because the next one's probably going to be super cooperative. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So um, one of our, our pre-readers was wondering, do you play any role in the production of your audiobooks or the voice talent? <laughs> so I definitely don't do I don't do any um, voices, but <laughs> um, but I I get to select the narrators, which I think is is so cool. And over the last maybe five years, I've really gotten into audiobooks myself. So I, I know the importance of a really good narrator. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there are some you know, and I actually I will go listen to books that maybe I wasn't even familiar with just because some narrator I love is narrating it. So, I mean, it's it's amazing what they do. Um, but so usually what happens when, when the book is done and they're ready to start recording the audiobook, they'll send me a couple um, a couple samples, a couple clips of narrators that they're, they're looking at. So they'll send me maybe three for each of the different narrators we need and I can listen to them and um, rank them in order. If, if I don't like any of them, then um, I can let my publisher know that too. Um, it, it's, it's just really neat, you know, when you've written a book for a year or whatever, and you have this, this character's voice in your head, and then you listen to these samples um, of audiobook narrators, and I feel like I always know, you know, there'll be some that I'm just like, no, that's not, that's not right, but then when, when I hear it, I know it, and um, the audiobook for Local and Missing, these narrators just did a phenomenal job, and um, I, I was just, I was just thrilled, because again, as a listener, you know, I know the value of a good narrator, mm -hmm. so as a writer, I'm just so grateful. Oh, wow. So exciting to hear that you get to be part of that and know that voice is, is reflected of what you want. Sure. Oh, wow. So since you are so high profile now, have you learned or heard of, about any famous fans who are tickled and enjoy your work? Um, every now and then I, I do see like on, I, on social media, on Twitter or Instagram, I will see, um, you know, some celebrity um, post a picture or something with my books. Um, years ago, um, Kristen Ritter, the actress, she she wrote a book called Bonfire. I It's been a few years. I can't remember what year exactly that came out, but she had sent it to me and asked if I would, you know, read an arc and, and maybe supply a blurb. And I was like, of course, um, I was so honored, but but she's just lovely. And every now and then she'll send me like a DM on Twitter or something. And it's it's kind of surreal. <laughs> my, my teenage daughter went, went crazy when she heard that. <laughs> but so it's it's really, it's nice. And like the couple, it, it doesn't have, you know, I haven't connected with many, but Emmy Rossum's another one that, that every now and then will send a, a DM or something on Twitter and just say something really kind about one of my books. But um, it's, it's, surreal but also then I realized they're just people and you know they're just readers and so but it's so it's so amazing really you know to, to know that somebody out there in Hollywood is reading it oh well then you got to be a beta reader for someone famous <laughs> um who do you lean on for your beta readers yeah so when I so when I'm writing when I'm drafting um I don't let anybody read the books I don't talk <laughs> to anybody about the books I'm like I, I don't know. It just, I think that I have to get that draft out myself because as soon as, as soon as I open my mouth and start saying something, it, everybody has something to say and they mean the best, but then I feel like it starts to get complicated. You know, I feel like there's too many ideas then and, and something about it doesn't feel like it's mine anymore. So uh -huh. when I'm writing that first draft, I just, I don't, I don't share with anybody. I don't, I usually have to get a proposal approved from my editor and that's just, you know, the basics and maybe a chapter. But after that, she, she doesn't ask me again <laughs> until the deadline is approaching. Um, 
But then when it's done, you know, then so when, when I have a solid draft done, I will have um, my, my editor and my agents, I'll send it to both of them. And I, usually at that point, I'll let my husband read it too. Um, and then, you know, we'll go through a number of rounds of revisions. And then I have to say with local and missing and the other misses, um, I did something I've never done before. And I'm actually in a book club myself. And so when they were, when they were all done with revisions, but still at a point where more revisions could be made, I, I asked my own book club members to read them just because I think that getting feedback from a reader would just be so valuable. You know, usually it's, it's literally just my husband, my agent, my <laughs> So, you know, you know, you know, as well as I do, the books are just so subjective. And so I felt at that point, like just the more feedback that I could get, the better. And I thought that it was just so, so helpful. You know, if, if some of the, um, some of those little breadcrumb clues were just a little too obvious or things like that, that if readers were picking up on things a lot earlier than I wanted to, then I would pull back and, and things like that. And, and so it was so helpful with, you know, pacing and, and laying those clues. And, and so I, I love doing that, you know, just getting like these other 10 um, people's opinions and they're everyday readers, you know, they're not somebody that's in the publishing industry, but they're, they're readers. Um, so, oh, wow. so I love that. So that's really, that's really all that I, all that I get to read it, you know, and, and then it's done. Oh, wow. So if these projects and manuscripts are being cooperative, <laughs> um, how long does it take you to do a first draft? Yeah. So, um, so usually I'll get that first draft done. I would say in about seven to eight months. And then um, my editor and I will go through it for the next couple months. And that's, that's always, it's such a good process. It's a good process because she has incredible feedback for one. But the second thing is that when she has the manuscript, say she has it for a month, that's a month that I'm not looking at it. I'm probably thinking about it, but I'm not working on it, you know, and mm -hmm. when she sends it back then to me, I can, I can see it with totally, you know, clear eyes and I have such a different perspective. So that's, that's always, you know, when the manuscripts here on my computer, it's impossible to walk away from it. You know, even if I'm at a really rough patch and I think I'm going to take two days off, I never do, you know, I go, I go right back <laughs> to it. So when she has it, that's, that's always so, so valuable. So, um, you know, I had been, I, I slowed down a little bit, but I had been publishing about a book a year. And then the last couple was more like 12, like 15 to 18 months, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. Much different than that, that five years grilled on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so many of your books are based in Chicagoland. Other than living there, why do you like basing books in that area? Yeah, well, I like it. I like it mostly because I live here, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's home. It's so easy to write about it because I know it. I don't have to do research. I don't have to think too much. You know, I don't have to wonder what's the weather like in Chicago in May or whatever, you know, I know. Um, so, so that's primarily the reason, but I also love it because there's a lot, you know, I could write a number of books and they can all be different. I can write in the suburbs as, as local and missing a set, or I could write in the city, which, you know, like, don't you cry. And when the lights go out are set. And, and even within the city, there are so many different neighborhoods that I can set it in different neighborhoods and just kind of bring a different feel to the book too. So I like that there is just so much diversity and location right here within this one, you know, Chicagoland area. Oh, wow. Great. So um, this question comes from a viewer. What reads would you recommend to someone who's a big fan of AJ Flynn and Jillian Flynn, Finn and Jillian Flynn, and an even bigger fan of Mary Kubica, but has burned through all three backlists? This person's on bed rest and at the top of their game in terms of speed reading. Okay. Oh, good. I, I wish I could learn. I want to speed read. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, okay, so I think some of my favorites of all time in this genre, um, Jennifer Hillier's Little Secrets, that one came out last year, I want to say, um, and it's just so phenomenal. The book starts with a little boy getting abducted, um, but then it takes this like complete turn into something that you don't anticipate, you know, in the opening chapter, chapters of the book, and it's so dark, but so, so good and just so smartly plotted. I just, that one I can't say enough good things about. Um, um, Before I Go to Sleep by S.J. Watson is another one that's been out for a number of years and there's a movie with Nicole Kidman too. That's another one that is just so smart. That's the book that I feel like 
you know, when I get asked, what book do you wish you would have written? And that's <laughs> one. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's brilliant, I think. And the twist just absolutely blew my mind. Um, so those two, and then Alice Feeney just came out with a, um, her fourth book. It's called Rock, Paper, Scissors. That one came out early September, I think it's really, it's really pretty new. Um, I've loved all of Alice's books, but this one, Rock, Paper, Scissors, just, I mean, she just hit it out of the ballpark with this one. So oh, I, wow. I recommend that one. That's another one that when I got to the twist and just the way that, you know, all the pieces she had laid before that came together, I was completely shocked. So, so those are, those are some, um, Megan Abbott's book. I'm, I'm the, the book about the gymnast and I'm, I'm forgetting the type, you will know me, I think it's called. Um, that's another one that, that I absolutely loved and Jillian McMillan's, um, what she knew. That's another one about a little boy getting abducted, but that it's so good. And it's so emotional and raw. That's, that's another one that I highly recommend. So, oh, wow. Well, thank you for those. Yeah, so, um, so you talk about the, you know, the twist. And as Karen Slaughter said, when I, in the intro, um, your books are altogether unpredictable, which I, I am a talented predictor and I completely agree. I had no idea. Um, what are some of the ways that you as a writer don't fall into that predictability or formulaic trap? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I really think that because I don't plot and I usually don't know the twist, I think <laughs> that actually helps <laughs> because, because, you know, I feel like when I think of the twist, when I finally get to that point, you know, I've laid the groundwork and I've made these characters and I'm starting to learn things about them. And I, I finally land on that twist. You know, if I kind of have that, oh, you know, if it surprises <laughs> me, then I feel like the reader will genuinely be surprised. And, and if I feel kind of, you know, like lukewarm about it, then it's not, you know, I feel like the reader won't be surprised, you know, no matter what I do, I don't know that I can get them to be surprised. So, you know, I think I base it so much on my own reaction. It's just kind of a gut feeling, but I think, you know, the, for it to be, um, I think that there is, I don't know, like it needs to be obviously not the same twists that have been done before. Um, you gotta, I think you gotta just really think higher and, and it's, it's getting harder, I have to say. I mean, this is a really popular genre with so many incredible authors writing incredible twists. So, you know, you gotta just kind of keep, continue to think. And um, I don't know, you know, I just, I think I just base it so much on how I feel and does it really surprise me? And do I, feel in my gut like this is right and that it's and that it's unique that it's something that hasn't been done before but simultaneously like plausible I think that there's something really to be said about things that are implausible just not sitting well with readers you know and and that's not to say I mean I have to you can kind of make anything happen but you just have to lay the groundwork for why or how this is happening oh wow yeah Mm. <laughs> I was just thinking of like the groundwork in your book for things that it's like Oh, it could be this, but it, but maybe, but not. Um, so wonderful, wonderful. Um, so, are you permitted to share anything about the other misses as it will come to life on Netflix? Yeah. So, so what I know is, um, so Netflix optioned it, and they want to make a movie with it, and um, so they have, um, they have a screenplay. A man named Jack Horn wrote the screenplay, which was. So just amazing. If you Google him, he's done so many incredible things. Um, he's he's just kind of a star. So so I was so excited when he got attached to it. And and so they have a they have a producer, they have um the executive producer, they're working on a director right now. So they're looking for a director. And then um the next thing that they'll do is cast it. And I will say that I I did get to read the screenplay and I can't say anything other than I, I really truly loved it. And I oh, just good thought that Jack Thorne did just a phenomenal, phenomenal job. So I don't have a timeline for that yet, but I'm hoping that there'll be news to share soon. Oh, can't <laughs> wait. Looking forward to that one. Thank you. So um, couple questions. What books or authors inspire you as a writer? Yeah, you know, I feel, I feel like they all in some way do, you know, I just, I, every time I read ever, you know, ever since I've become an author, I read much differently than I did before. And, you know, I'm just looking for different things and I'm questioning things like, how did the author surprise me like that? And I know I read, um, or I listened to Alex Michaelides on The Silent Patient not that long ago. And I mean, I was shocked, you know, I, I usually, I try so hard, of course, to, to get the twist, but I was so shocked, you know, and so, 
then right away I thought, I've got, I've got to get the physical book. I've got to study this thing. I want to know how to do this. <laughs> Um, so I just, I think that I am always paying attention to, you know, how are authors doing twists and what, like when, I, when, when I come across a character that I really connect with, why am I connecting with this character? Why do I care so much about this character? And, and just things like that, you know, I feel like when I, I read for pleasure, but I'm also sort of studying and it's, it's just everything, you know, there isn't a particular book or character that, that jumps out to me, but um, but I will say um, Bird by Bird by Annie Lamont is just, it's such an inspirational book for a writer. You know, it, it's, there's, there's some how-to in there. If, if there's, if there's aspiring writers with us or writers with us right now, there's some how-to in there. But I think that just sort of that emotional journey that a writer goes through, that's one that I just connected so much with that. So if, if you're looking for, um, if anybody's looking for books on writing, that was one that I absolutely loved. Oh, Wow. What is one thing you never or rarely get asked, but love to share or speak about? Oh, that's a good question, but um, I don't know that I have a good answer. <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like, gosh, I don't know. I feel like I get asked most of the questions. I, I, you know, I already shared kind of my, how did I get into publishing? That's always my favorite story to share just because I think that, you know, I think that again, you know, when I, when I do events like this, there are so many aspiring writers in, in the audience. And so I think that that's one that's always just so good to share that people need to hear that, you know, um, so many authors, I mean, I feel like it's, it's a story, you know, some, some version of that I've heard from so many authors that I've met, but that it, you know, can take years to find an agent and that there's a lot of rejection really precedes those, um, those offers. And so I think that that's always one that when I don't get asked, I always feel like people need to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Yeah, sure. Do you keep in touch with any of your colleagues or students from your teaching days? And have you ever felt the urge to write something more in the vein of historical, even with research? <laughs> Um, I do keep in touch with some, um, and more the teachers than the students. Um, I, I, I taught a little bit in the suburbs of Chicago, but then for a number of years, um, we were actually living out in Omaha. My husband was um, relocated for work. And so, so now I'm back in Chicago. So there's, there's some distance there, but, um, but um, I do, you know, the historical fiction that I, I think about it all the time, just you know, I, I love reading historical fiction when I'm not reading suspense. It's definitely my go-to genre. Um, so, but the, the, the research intimidates me, you know, and I feel like right now, at least while I'm under contract and having deadlines that I don't know that I could pull it off. I think it would, I would need to really like allow myself two plus years to do the research and then write the book. So maybe one day. Oh, wow. So the librarian in me does have to ask, how has, how have libraries influenced you as a writer or a reader? Oh, oh my gosh, so much. I just, I mean, some of my, some of my early fondest memories are of going to the library with my mom. You know, I would go and I would just check out as many books as I could possibly carry. And I always felt like, like, am I really allowed to take all these books home? <laughs> <Are you> okay. <laughs> Um, and I mean, I just, I loved it. You know, I was just like a really curious kid. And, you know, one day I would like love buildings and the next day I want to learn about insects. And it was like, I could just go and get all these books. And it was just my favorite thing to do. And, you know, so, I mean, I think that that love of libraries started at this, at an early age, just having access to all these books and all this knowledge. And, and it just continued once I had kids, um, we would go to the library like weekly and fill up a giant tote bag with books. And we had, you know, like a basket for the library books. And the kids and I would sit on the couch for hours and read. And, you know, so just myself, I've always been a big reader. I've just, I've, you know, tried so hard to instill a love of reading in my children. And I have libraries to thank for that. And then as a writer, I mean, I've been welcoming, welcomed into so many libraries. Um, and I just, you know, I, I love libraries because there's, you know, the books, but there's just this wonderful sense of community that I feel like you really can't find anywhere else, you know, just all the programs that libraries offer and just, you know, that, I don't know, just everyone is welcome. And I just, I love that. So I, I feel so grateful that I've been welcomed into all these libraries in person and now in this virtual space, which, you know, I, I miss being able to see people 
face to face and all that. But I love that, you know, here in this virtual space, you know, I can chat with you tonight in Minnesota while I'm here in Chicago and that we're still able to do all, all of this. So I'm just, I'm so grateful to libraries for the impact that they've had on me and my family and my, my career. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Mary. Um, it's been an honor and I've been so glad to welcome you into my library this evening. Thanks again, Mary, for penciling us into your busy October. It's been a wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me and for the fabulous questions and to everyone who joined us tonight. Have a great night, everyone. That wraps up our Anoka County Library event with Mary Kubica. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Kate Quinn. Kate Quinn is one of the best known and best-selling authors writing today in the realm of historical fiction. Her latest novel, The Rose Code, follows a trio of British codebreakers as they attempt to break one of World War II's most notorious ciphers. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.